Welcome to Broad Appeal, the podcast that looks back at female-driven films from the not-so-distant past. My name is Sean. And I'm Brian. How you doing, Brian? Ooh, Sean, I'm feeling the gothic warmth of romantic terror. (laughs) And you? Well, I'm feeling the same, considering it's just been Valentine's Day. And yes, super as always. Oh, good. Listeners, it's a couple of days after Valentine's Day. I'm sure you're all wondering, what did Sean and Brian do to celebrate? And the answer, Sean? Well... If, if only I'll, they I'll get knew. the chocolate body paint off of the sheets at some time, I'm sure. I will take the chains <laughs> off the ceiling. And those gerbils. All right, it's a mess in there. <laughs> well, we didn't really plan it this way, Sean, but I suppose in some weird, perverted, macabre way, the novel and film Rebecca make a kind of semi-appropriate Valentine's Day viewing? Do they? Mm. I mean, is this a love story? Is this a romance? What What is this story, Sean? If you look at this story in comparison to most of the stories we have on this reading list, they could be alternative Valentine's Day reading lists for the lonely, depressed, sadomasochistic, and willfully abused. <laughs> have we picked any happy books? Well, there is that terrible, you know, mass murder at the end of the Bridges of Madison County. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, the book we've picked today is Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier, and it was turned into a film in 1940, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Do you know anything in terms of like Alfred Hitchcock's career, why Rebecca stands out for a few reasons? One, it's his first American film. Correct. Produced by the great... MGM. David O. Selznick. Of MGM. Uh, was he at the time? Maybe. No, it was Selznick International. He was a lone wolf who had just come off of Gone with the Wind. Mr. Davis, please, Mr. Davis. <laughs> I, I didn't do no harm, Mr. Davis. I'm just a lonely southern woman. <laughs> you basically just shifted from Prissy and Gone with the Wind to Blanche from the Golden Girls there just then, Sean. Yeah, yeah. Natural progression. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I know some more. It won the Academy Award for Best Picture. Yes. So Alfred Hitchcock never won an Oscar for Best Director, even though he's probably the most famous director who ever lived. And Rebecca also holds another dubious record. It won Best Picture in 1940, and it won Production Design, and no other kind of major award, like not writing or acting or directing or anything. Wasn't Grand Hotel a bit similar? Didn't Grand Hotel just win Best Picture or yeah, anything else? Yeah, just one. Uh-huh. Yeah. Okay, so we've been talking about the film of Rebecca, but of course it was a very popular novel that was written just a couple of years before the film came out. So what we have here, I think, is the first case on our reading list of popular fiction, right? We've done Henry James, we've done Nobel Laureate Alfreda Jelinek, but Daphne du Maurier is in a bit of a different category, isn't it? There was a certain literary skill to her well-crafted, pulpy in places stories. I mean, you think about the fact that Hitchcock made The Birds, which is based on a du Maurier story, and also Jamaica Inn. Yes, and there's one more famous du Maurier story that was adapted (gasps) into a film. Don't Look Now. Yeah, Nicholas Rogue's film. So she had a penchant for making narratives that Hollywood just loved to adapt. So, Sean, much to my discredit, much to my chagrin, I had never read Rebecca, and I'd never even seen the film, Um, even though I've seen nearly every Hitchcock film except uh, Torn Curtain. (laughs) Have you seen Topaz? No, I was about to say Topaz. Yeah, Topaz, Torn Curtain. Family Blood? I never got to the tease. No. I have seen The Trouble About Harry. I was just going to say, yeah... But I never saw Rebecca, and I'd never read the book. You, however, did read the book, and I'm wondering, when did you read it? I read the book 
13 years ago. So, 14-year-old Sean decided to pick up this pulpy 1938 gothic romance. Why? So, about 14 years ago, there was the BBC's 100 Greatest Books in the English Language. It was voted for by the public. You know, Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was in, like, the top ten. Okay? Mm-hmm. I was so excited because my mind was being opened to all these books I'd never heard of. Okay? Whereas now I know if I saw that list, I would scoff and roll my eyes and poo-poo the public's complete ignorance of, of true great art. And that, Brian, is how Brexit happened. <laughs> so I'm assuming number one on the list was not Finnegan's Wake. No. I do think Ulysses made it into the top ten, but I don't think anyone who actually voted for it read the book. Um, Although we've spoken a lot about Lanesborough County Longford's video store, which regular listeners will remember was called... Kiernan's! Yes, we've talked often about your your youthful trips to Kiernan's. Did you have a local library, and is that where you got Rebecca from? Yes, and at one point, it was practically opposite Kiernan's. No! No, no, you know that Alan and I mentioned that Kiernan's was actually in a house, (laughs) but at one point, Kiernan's did move down the road. Do we ever address this? But in Kiernan's kind of last legs of being a video shop, pre-DVD, which just decimated the whole town, to be honest, it was very, very close to the library. And Brian, you've walked past that library. Have I? Yeah, you have. Did I not notice it was a library? Well, it was Christmas <laughs> Eve. It was midnight mass. It just what, ended. what does the library in Lanesborough look like? Is it a well, like everything, quaint clapboard building? No, like everything in Ireland, it's a bungalow. <laughs> so the library was just also like Kiernan's in somebody's extended house. But the video shop and the library were annexes, so to speak, to someone's home. I not, think so. But not the same person. No. Okay. Not the same person. But when I got Rebecca, I got it from the new Lanesborough Library. So not the one you've just been describing? No, but I just thought I'd mention that anyway. So this was a long tangent? Yes, of course. Okay. So you went to get it because of this BBC list? Because of the BBC list, and also because my mother said it was great. It's easy to read. There's nothing super adult about it. Like, books were not censored in my home. So I, let it be known, everyone listening to this episode, Sean has not reread Rebecca due to time constraints, which is perfectly fine. I have read Rebecca just in the last couple of weeks. So we have this interesting experience of, I mean, the first line of Rebecca, I'm sure you remember is... Last night I dreamt I went to Mandalay again. Right. So in a sense, Rebecca itself is a story of memory and recalling the past. Which is what I'm doing now. Yes, it's about the past as it transmutes and transmogrifies and it turns into a haunting. So I'm wondering, as you think back to your 14-year-old self turning these pages, what do you remember of your impressions of Rebecca? Did you enjoy it? No, I definitely enjoyed it. I remember it being different than the things I had read up to that point. Mm -hmm. Because, one, it was an old book. Yeah. But also, like, you know when you read the the first adult books you read as a child? Yeah. Like, Alan used to read Agatha Christie when he was, like... Well, Alan was very prodigious as well, you know. And um, I started reading... I just went straight for Desaad age 13. Wait, for real? No. (laughs) 
It was a great page turner. I felt uh, an eerie sense of discomfort. You know, I felt I was part of that English stately home world for the time I was reading it. I felt like the heroine. I felt like the main character of it. Okay, so there's something, there's a literary device to this book that is very notable. We've so far read two books that had third person narration, and this one has first person narration. So who is the person who's narrating this book, Rebecca? Well, it's obviously the second Mrs. De Winter. Right. And we never, ever learn her name. Well, her name is Mrs. De Winter. Well, eventually, when she gets married to Mr. De Winter, but at the start of the story, she's not married to him. She's presumably Miss somebody or other. And in fact, at one point in this kind of, you might not recall this. Oh, I do remember this, yeah. There's some little part where they're in Monte Carlo and someone comments on her absolutely distinctive name. But, of course, we never learn it, and De Moray never tells us what it is. Well, they're like, well, my father was a very distinctive man. <laughs> Why am I always Southern? Well, I, I don't know. You say you related to this unnamed heroine? No, no, I wouldn't say I related to her. I became her in this story. At 14, why? What What did you connect with? Um, I enjoyed the idea that I knew as much as the heroine did. So she is our conduit into this world, right? She's a young British woman who is accompanying a woman called Mrs. Van Hopper on a tour of the south of France. Yeah, she's a sort of paid companion. God, I wish that job still existed. I'd do it. Darling, I'm sure there there are some men listening to this podcast now who would gladly employ you in that capacity. Well, if you are listening, old men of esteem... My Twitter handle is at X. Okay, so she's a paid companion. She basically exists to, like, play bridge with Mrs. Van Hopper and, like, make dinner reservations for her and generally carry her bags and things. And she meets whom? She meets Maxim de Winter. Yeah. Who is a rich widower who owns a stately home called Manderley. Infamous, in fact. Mrs. Van Hopper knows a lot about the sort of lure and mystique of... Maxim de Winter, and she's like, oh, don't you know, that's that's Maxim de Winter, mm. across there, across the, the bar of the Hotel Monte Carlo. Oh, and of course he's devastated since his wife Rebecca died. Yes, and how did she die? Well, she died in a kind of an accident, didn't she? A dr- she drowned. She drowned. Yeah, in a boating accident. But the heroine doesn't know who this de Winter is, she's, she's a very bland yeah, kind of a girl. I was going to say that, you said it before me. Would you call her a cipher? I mean, she has a few moments, where we'll talk about later on, where she kind of speaks up for herself, mm-hmm. but th- she's so passive in the sense that things just happened to her. Right. As I read it in the last few weeks, I did find that somewhat irritating, but I can see what you're saying that in a way she's a blank slate and she's kind of she doesn't know anything. So along with the reader, she is discovering the kind of mysterious levels of what's happened in Manderley and what's happened to Rebecca. Well, this is the thing. It's all about ways of seeing and ways of reading. I imagine that many audiences at the time reading it and even indeed myself, age 14 in the middle of Ireland with no true idea of gender inequality or the class system I was like wow all these exciting things are happening whereas if I read it now I'd be like what a wimp stand up for yourself woman there there are moments throughout this where you're like why doesn't she just talk to someone like why is he such a damp squib yeah it's so deeply frustrating yeah. but I also think it's interesting that you mentioned the class system because I suspect that uh, Trotskyite Sean were he to be reading this now in his maturity you would be throwing this book against the wall for the kind of class privilege that's on display like throughout the first <laughs> page that I dog-eared here is early on so she's saying uh, I dreamt I went to Mandalay again last night so of course they've they've left Mandalay after all the horrors of what's happened with the revelations about Rebecca and she's thinking back to what Mandalay was like she says I think of half past four at Mandalay and the table drawn before the fire the door flung open 
punctual to the minute, and the performance never varying of the laying of the tea, the silver tray, the kettle, the snowy cloth, while Jasper, his spaniel ears adroop, feigns indifference to the arrival of the cakes. That feast was laid before us always, and yet we ate so little. Those dripping crumpets, I can see them now, tiny crisp wedges of toast, and piping hot flowery scones, sandwiches of unknown nature, mysteriously flavoured and quite delectable, and that very special gingerbread, angel cake that melted in the mouth, and his rather stodgier companion bursting with peel and raisins. There was enough food there to keep a starving family for a week. I never knew what happened to it all, and the waste used to worry me sometimes. There's something about this paragraph that to me that just like captured the tone of simpering, um, dreadful people, dreadful Englishness, because this woman rises from being of relatively low station to being the lady of the manor in Mandalay because Maxim marries her. She can't really inhabit the role because everyone's going around being like, well, of course, Rebecca did it this way. Darling, don't you know Rebecca? Oh, Rebecca, Rebecca did this, Rebecca did that. And like, at no point does she ever seem to be like, to ask anyone about like Rebecca or to express any frustration. She's like... Oh, God, I guess I'm just not as good as Rebecca. You know, so you do want to, like, slap the narrator around at certain points and just be like... Fire them all! <laughs> Fire the damn household! Yeah, yeah. Get rid of them! Why the hell is Mrs. Danvers still there? Yeah. There is this intense sense of class privilege that goes throughout the book. Do you remember anything about the character of Maxim de Winter? Yeah, he was a big, uh, you know, guy. <laughs> you know, he was smoldering, sultry... People went mad for him. Well, I know they they, they do <laughs> in this any book. Of that correct? No, it's right. Like he's supposed to be, I think, this kind of dreamy, brooding, troubled, rich guy. But I just found him like absolutely insufferable. He he's just this like hoity-toity, landed gentry kind of guy who has all these secrets, right, about him and his past wife that he doesn't tell the narrator. He just marries her. He treats her like a child, basically. And then whenever she makes a little misstep or does something wrong, he kind of snaps at her and he goes off and broods melancholically in the side. And you're just thinking, is this a love story at all? I mean, why should I care about the marriage of this dreadful, simpering, wimpy woman and this kind of terrible, misogynist, elitist jerk. Well, let me tell you, Brian. Why should I care? Well, in comparison to the main characters of La La Land, you definitely care more, don't you? <laughs> Just getting that in there. Okay. Um, why do you care, though? Don't you wonder why he's doing this? Why he's acting this way? The propelling question through the whole thing is, is Max still in love with Rebecca, right? Because the second Mrs. De Winter, she comes, she lives in the house, she's treated badly by all the servants, particularly the housekeeper... Mrs. Danvers. That's right. Do, do you remember any of the moments that they describe Mrs. Danvers? They oh, she's like skeleton-like. Yes, yes, she has a face like, like a skull. Oh, really? That's it, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's just an old kind of sour crone. <laughs> she's always appearing, you know, yeah. at, at times when you least expect it. And kind of, she's one of those people who like walks without being seen and knows all the secret passages. And you're, you're absolutely right. It's like, why do they still have her around? No one seems to like her. She's just like, she's a ghost herself. Who played her in the film? Judith Anderson. You see, I, for some reason, keep thinking that the woman who played... The Wicked Witch of the West, Margaret Hamilton, mm-hmm. played Mrs. Danvers. Well, you can understand why, because she is sort of a ghoulish, witchy-type woman. So basically, Mrs. Danvers, like, preserves the memory of Rebecca. She she keeps the West Wing perfectly the way that it was when the first Mrs. De Winter was there. 
the thing about this book that's interesting is like there's long paragraphs and chapters where the second Mrs. De Winter is kind of wishy-washily hanging around fretting about her station in the house and then every once in a while when revelations come people talk in these big long monologues there's lots of like banter back and forth but then they have these big long monologues and Mrs. Danvers gets two of them the first one is where she's talking about um, how much she loves Rebecca. So we get a sense of the kind of sapphic desire that may have existed between them. Can I read one of the paragraphs? Yeah. That was her bed. It's a beautiful bed, isn't it? I keep the golden coverlet on it always. It was her favourite. Here is the nightdress inside the case. You've been touching it, haven't you? This was the nightdress she was wearing for the last time before she died. Would you like to touch it again? She took the nightdress from the case and held it before me. Feel it. Hold it, she said. How soft and light it is, isn't it? I haven't washed it since she wore it for the last time. I put it out like this, and the dressing gown and the slippers. Just as I put them out for her, the night she never came back. The night she was drowned. She folded up the nightgown and put it back in the case. I did everything for her, you know, she said, taking my arm again, leading me to the dressing gown and slippers. We tried maid after maid, but not one of them suited. You made me better than anyone, Danny, she used to say. I won't have anyone but you. Look, this is her dressing gown. She was much taller than you. (laughs) You can see by the length. Put it against you. It comes down to your ankles. She had a beautiful figure. These are her slippers. Throw me my slips, Danny, she used to say. She had little feet for her height. Put your hands inside the slippers. They're quite small and narrow, aren't they? Creepy. Is what about the part where you can see right through it? Maybe it's in the film, but there's a part, point where she holds up like a sheer nightgown and is like, "Put your hand to it. Look, you can see right through it." Something like that. Literally, the only thing I've known about Rebecca, and I, the only scene I've seen of it, I think, is in the Cellular Closet, the um, documentary about gay representation in the movies. That Mrs. Danvers is this like coded lesbian, and I think she's like fingering the underwear and kind of it's clearly inspired by this paragraph but i think hitchcock and the filmmakers like really Rammed go go full-on dyke with it right am i allowed to say that <laughs> <laughs> she's by far the most exciting character in the book and she's the one with the with the strongest kind of intention because everybody else just like wandering around eating fucking crumpets and like stroking the fucking dog and at least mrs danvers has something she's fighting for which is the memory of rebecca she was kind of my hero in this book Creepy, sapphic, deathly lesbo witch. Exactly. Who wouldn't love that? So I'm interested in it because we haven't talked about this. Do you remember all the way through everybody saying, oh, Rebecca was so tall. Rebecca was so beautiful. Rebecca did everything so marvelously. I'm reading along and I'm like, Rebecca was a fucking bitch. <laughs> like, like something's terrible happened to Rebecca. But our heroine, and I think this is the thing is like, it becomes a certain point where you're just like, girl, wake up. You in danger, girl. You know, <laughs> to quote to quote Whoopi Goldberg. You keep thinking Rebecca was great, but there are all these people dropping dark sort of hints that Rebecca wasn't as good as she seems, but our heroine never seems to pick up on them. So Maxim's sister and the guy who runs the estate, they're all kind of, every time she says, oh, but Rebecca was so perfect, they're all like, Hmm, yes. And the reader's like, shake them, ask them what the deal with Rebecca. Yeah, just say, she was nice, wasn't she? (laughs) (laughs) But then the truth all comes out. And what do we learn about Rebecca? Do you remember? Yeah, she was a horrible, horrible woman. Yeah, but why? Because she was prego with another man's baby. Not just another man, darling. Her cousin, her dissolute alcoholic cousin, Jack. 
So he was basically conducting a long affair, but it's implied that Rebecca was basically like the village bike with everybody, right? So she's she was a she was a full on slut, but she was also mean, not to Mrs. Danvers, but she was definitely mean to poor old Maxim and his beautiful house and all his money. So whatever happened is like they got married for God knows what reason, and then she basically just immediately tells him. I've married you, and I'm going to act the perfect wife, but I'll do what I want, and that means sleeping with whoever I want. I'll even have my own little cottage down by the sea where I'll bring my lovers. And on the night of her death, we learn that she came and she told Maxim that she was pregnant with Jack's baby, and she was going to raise the baby as Maxim's child, and then that baby, this illegitimate son, was going to inherit Mandalay. And so what does Maxim do? He shoots her. He shoots her in a fit of jealousy, and then covers it up to look like a boating accident so she dies. Now, okay, I just want to put you in a situation, Joan. So you are a woman, or a man, you're a young person, <laughs> who's just gotten to a whirlwind romance with someone who tells you, Oh yeah, do you know how my um, ex-partner supposedly died? Actually, I shot them in a fit of jealousy. What would your first reaction be? Run away. Yeah. Instead, this woman says... Oh, how marvelous. He didn't love Rebecca. He loves me. Well, actually, I think I would have said that at one point. Oh, thank goodness. He's just murderous. He does love me. (laughs) This is where the sympathy of this whole thing, like, completely lost me. Like, the sexual morality of this book is so bizarre. And this is the thing. I found myself relating more to the people who are supposed to be the dastardly villains than the people who are the heroes. So as all of Rebecca's sexual indiscretions are coming to pass... This is what her lover-slash-cousin Jack says to Maxim. All married men with lovely wives are jealous, aren't they? And some of them just can't help playing Othello. They're made that way. I don't blame them. I'm sorry for them. I'm a bit of a socialist in my way, you know. And I can't think why fellows can't share their women instead of killing them. What difference does it make? You can get your fun just the same. A lovely woman isn't like a motor tire. She doesn't wear out. The more you use her, the better she goes. So we're both supposed to read that and think that that is a terrible thing that he's talking about, you know, like wife swapping and menage a trois and, and like, we're like free love. And duh. I'm just like, I'm just like, <laughs> this guy's making a lot of sense. If Rebecca wanted to sleep with other people, like she should be allowed. She certainly didn't need to die. Don't you think kissing another person merits death? <sighs> Don't you? Where do we get to The Handmaid's Tale? Okay, <laughs> that's all I have to say. Only Maximin, the second Mrs. De Winter, his new wife, know that he actually shot Rebecca, but they're not saying it. And it basically comes down to a question of, did Maxim kill her, or did she commit suicide? And Jack and Mrs. Dandridge are having none of this. They're like, no way that someone with as strong a life force as Rebecca would want to kill herself. So they find Rebecca's diary from the day she died, and she has an appointment to go to the doctor. So they all get in a car and they drive to Barnet, of all places. Wait. Barnet, in London. I thought this book was set in Cornwall. Yeah, they have to go all the way to London. What? She's gone to London to a specialist. Redonkulous. And and do you remember what we find out is the true story of what happened to Rebecca? No. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) The true story is she went to this doctor. This doctor told her that she had an incurable illness presumably some form of cancer, and it had malformed her uterus so she would not be able to have a baby. So she comes back. She doesn't want to die a slow and painful death, so she makes up the story about being pregnant to Maxim in an effort to enrage him so that he'll be jealous and kill her quickly. Oh, wow. So he is a murderer, 
but, but in some sort of crazy morality, because she was willing it, we as readers are supposed to think, oh, she wanted to die anyway, he was acting out of rage, and now we should be happy. And basically, Maxim and his new wife are now can live happily ever after, except as they're driving back from London, off in the distance, what do they see? Mandalay ablaze. Mandalay ablaze. So presumably who's lit it on fire? The wicked crone herself, Madame Danvers. Interestingly, even though I knew that's how the film ended, because I think it has this spectacular burning scene, in the book we don't see it ablaze, we just see them, you know, seeing the fire in the distance, and that's the end. And we're never quite sure what happens to Mrs. Danvers at the end, but I, I have a feeling that in the movie we we get to see what happens to her. So as I recount to you, Jean, this plot, does it stri- how does it strike you now? It strikes me as a very involving story. How would you how would you categorize it? it? What is it a mystery novel? Well, I guess so in a way. The only sleuthing they do is when they go to the doctor. I guess it's sort of a gothic horror story in a way, but with with minimal horror. Now, can right? you define gothic for me, please? Well, it's just the the emotions are heightened. The sea is churning and the rain is lashing, you know, and there's a sense that the supernatural haunts them. So even though Rebecca never appears as an actual ectoplasmic figure, mm-hmm. her kind of cold hands seem to be manipulating and pulling the strings, right? People say that Daphne du Maurier was inspired a bit by the Brontes. Like, you can see how Jane Eyre um, has a similar plot. A man, mm-hmm. a wealthy, successful mm-hmm. man, marries a new woman and has a past wife and secrets, you know, buried mm-hmm. that kind of come up out of the grave and haunt them. And actually, Olivier played uh, Mr. Rochester, didn't he? No, he played Heathcliff in Wuthering Heights, and Orson Welles played Mr. Rochester. Now, who, Sean, played the second Mrs. De Winter well, in the film? Can I just say how telling it is that we've got to this stage in the podcast without even mentioning who played Mrs. De Winter. We've said that this character of the second Mrs. De Winter is a drippy, dry, bland, bland, forgettable character. So who on earth could you cast in this part? Well, no one, Brian, except for Joan Fontaine. Yes, so ladies and gentlemen, in case it's never been clear here on Broad Appeal, we are hashtag Team Olivia. And if you don't know what we're talking about, you clearly don't know about the two most famous sisters in all of Hollywood history, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Now, you, Sean, you have called Olivia de Havilland drippy, I think, to me in in the past. Oh, I mean... Shockingly, no lightning bolt came out of the sky and hit you. But, like, so there were two sisters, Olivia de Havilland and Joan Fontaine. Well, Olivia de Havilland is drippy, but Joan Fontaine is, like, a waterfall. (laughs) I will not have anything negative said about Olivia de Havilland. The woman has two Academy Awards. She's also Melanie in Gone with the Wind. And she speaks with the most marvelous inflections of anyone who has ever presented an Academy Award. Can I just say... Your Olivia de Havilland is like one, you know, notch away from your Margaret Thatcher, who is like one notch away from whoever else you do. I'm not saying they're not good, they're excellent, but there is a, uh, there is a connection between them all. It was a marvellous night. The Falkland Islands belong to me, Olivia de Havilland. <laughs> no, but see, Olivia de Havilland said it like this. The Falkland Islands belong to me. Yes, anyway. 
Olivia de Havilland, she was in Swashbucklers with Errol Flynn, she's in Robin Hood, she's amazing as Melanie in Gone with the Wind. You've got to give her credit for that. Yeah? Yes. Yes? Yes. Yes? She's no Hattie McDaniel, though. <laughs> I think she's marvelous and heiress and tons of other roles. Joan Fontaine, like, let's acknowledge, like, forgettable, interchangeable. I can't even remember what she looked like. So in this feud between the two sisters, I feel like there's no question who you should side with. Can I also say... She has one of those names that you know is a glamorous name, yet it does nothing. Joan Fontaine. Yeah, she might as well have been called... She could, she could have read it off a soapbox. Yes, exactly. She might as well have been Jane Fountain, you know? <laughs> it's all the same. Do you think Hitchcock knew that when he was kind of casting it? Like, if you got handed the script and you're like, you're going to be the lead in this movie, but you're a person with absolutely no personality or agency, like, would you be excited? Um, Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just because you'd be the lead in a movie. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure he tortured her half to death on that set. Because he, he didn't have a good history with his leading No, ladies. he didn't. He was deeply sexist. But I think, to be quite honest, I'm not saying it's the right thing to do, but in terms of the character and the story, he was the director for this picture. You mean he was the person who had to do this? Oh, yes. He was the right one. That My takeaway from reading the book is that, like, this is a great premise, right? Woman moves into a new house. She's haunted by the memory of the woman who was there before. It lacks something in the kind of point-by-point action. Like, there's just too much sitting around on settees and, like, you know, worrying about things. But I'm hoping that Hitchcock's talent for ratcheting up tension can take the the elements of this and really turn it up a notch, which I think is what this book needs. You know what I want to see? The Hitchcock version of Portrait of a Lady and the Jane Campion version of Rebecca. Ooh. If you hear that, Jane Campion, I'm sure the rights are available. It's probably in the public domain. Well, we are going to see if the Academy got it right and if Alfred Hitchcock took this pulpy piece of literature and turned it into art as we look at Rebecca. Rebecca. (laughs) Roll the film. I watched you go down, just as I watched her a year ago. Even in the same dress, you couldn't compare. You knew it. You knew that she wore it, and yet you deliberately suggested I wear it. Why do you hate me? What have I done to you that you should ever hate me so? You tried to take her place. You let him marry you. I've seen his face, his eyes. They're the same as those first weeks after she died. I used to listen to him, walking up and down, up and down, all night long, night after night, thinking of her, suffering torture because he'd lost her. I don't want to know. I don't want to know. You thought you could be Mrs. DeWinter. Live in her house. Walk in her steps. Take the things that were hers. But she's too strong for you. You can't fight her. No one ever got the better of her. Never, never. She was beaten in the end. But it wasn't a man. It wasn't a woman. It was the sea. Oh, stop it. Stop it. Oh, stop it. You're overwrought, madam. I've opened a window for you. A little air will do you good. Promise me never to wear black satin or pearls or to be 36 years old. 
I can only promise two of those things, Brian. <laughs> so, Brian, this is Alfred Hitchcock's first foray into Hollywood filmmaking, although it presents itself at the start with the Selznick company logo. It's always a treat to see some of the lesser-known film studios presented at the start of a picture. I, I, to me, that opening of Selznick International is not the lesser-known because it's probably the opening that I've seen more times than any other movie, which is dun, 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 Wait, dun. Is that... It's Gone with the Wind. Oh, right. Because remember... I thought it was like NBC. What's that one? Dun, dun, dun. But this is dun, 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 dun. So how does Gone with the Wind begin? It begins with that same shot of that house that, I don't know, I guess must be the offices of Selznick International, oh. saying a Selznick International picture, and then Margaret Mitchell's Story of the Old South. Da, 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 da. And let it be said, I'm just going to say... That film's racist. I, I know it is. I know it is. This film is classist. That film is racist. Let it be said, David O. Selznick had two Best Picture winners in a row, but Gone with the Wind has better music. Yeah. This movie had dreadful music. Yeah, the, the music was not great. No. Okay. Question, though. What? What did the Selznick International Company, whatever it's called... What did it merge with? In my understanding, David O. Selznick was one of the rare independent producers at the time in Hollywood. He had this huge hit with um, Gone with the Wind, and then apparently with Rebecca. These were big, best-selling novels that were turned into big, successful films. Then he got, I think, a bit full of himself, and of course, his whole marriage collapsed in his obsessive sexual desire for... Men. Jennifer Jones! Oh yes, Jennifer Jones. Yes, and his entire reputation was destroyed, and Jewel in the Sun, one of your favorite movies. Uh, actually, I do love Jewel in the Sun. It didn't really feel like a Hitchcock picture 100% to me. It felt like David O. Selznick, wunderkind producer, Hollywood man, bringing over this acclaimed British director, but it seemed to have the fingerprints to me more of a Hollywood film and and less of the kind of masterpiece of Hitchcock. Would you agree? Yeah, but I mean, I'm trying to think what would indicate that it's a Hollywood film and probably it's kind of seamlessness, really. It's high gloss, high production value, presenting it in quite a glamorous way because the thing about Hitchcock is that even, even though he was a skillful filmmaker and he made quite beautiful pictures as well, there was always kind of a distinct ugliness, I think, in some aspects of his filmmaking. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't know if the films themselves are ugly, but they certainly have... Well, there's a thematic ugliness. Yeah, there's there's a moral darkness and complication. I mean... You know, what films had Hitchcock made before Rebecca? He'd made The 39 Steps, The Lady Vanishes. They're nimble and light-footed. This feels to me like it's very clearly filmed on a soundstage. There's a lot of clearly very state-of-the-art and expensive trick shots to kind of make Mandalay look like this castle. And and it's... It it, It works very well. Yeah, it's beautiful and evocative. But I think the real Hitchcock genius that would flower later, and and you think about films that we've seen recently of Hitchcock's, like Strangers on a Train, you have these protagonists who are... so morally ambiguous. Yeah, they're caught in morally ambiguous situations, and... In this situation, I was hoping that he took Daphne du Maurier's scenario and kind of somehow made it feel deeper to me. And except in fits and starts, I didn't feel that way. I felt like it was a relatively faithful adaptation, point by point. But to me, it didn't deepen it. What was it like for you? Um, You hadn't seen this movie since you were a teen, really. 
Well, at the time I thought it was a good picture. Now I think it's fine. I'm not a filmmaker, I'm not an artist in this in this respect. It's just that in the canon of Hitchcock, it is not grade A authorship. There are great scenes in this, and I would actually say that some of the best scenes are the ones where he diverges more from the novel or changes things in the novel. I mean, we read in the first half that scene where Mrs. Danvers shows her all of Rebecca's things, and Hitchcock really ratchets up the creepiness in that scene with those, you know, translucent draperies and the the shadows. And 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 then he has her sit the second Mrs. de Winter down on the settee and kind of... She's nearly stroking her hair. And I couldn't help but think of Scotty in Vertigo. The obsessiveness about yeah. recreating things and the kind of OCD yeah, of idea of, like, having someone stand in for a deceased, obsessive, you know, woman. There's that sense of, of obsession and moral ambiguity that's kind of simmering under the surface. And definitely Mrs. Danvers is the standout here. I mean, it's it's homophobic in the extreme, right? Oh, yeah. But he kind of turns her into this devilish villain. Do you think she's morally ambiguous? Or is she presented uh, so rigidly as a villain that she has no other choice but to be the villain? She seems possessed and insane. I mean, she's as she's leading Joan Fontaine around the West Wing, she's saying things like, nothing could have killed Rebecca, no one could kill her. It was the sea, the sea that got her. I think I could hear her footsteps sometimes in the hallway. I mean, she's inhuman. It was interesting, like, that you remembered that the novel, Mrs. Danvers, she's described as skull-like and a skeleton. I don't think that's how Judith Anderson looked. Uh, I don't know. I mean, she's... Skull-like? Yeah. She's got quite a full face. She's not gaunt. No, she's not gaunt, but she's, like, angular like a skull. You know, you can see, you know, you can see Theresa May's skull through her face. (laughs) I've no, always thought no, this. But that's that's well put. Theresa May looks more skull-like to me than Judith Anderson as Mrs. Danvers. Yeah, but so in this... Okay, she might not be skull-like in the book, but she's definitely spectral. Yes, for sure. She's sort of more like an undertaker or a kind of emissary from from Hades, you know? But, emissary from Hades. Well, yeah, because when she says... A cultural attaché <laughs> from Hades. <laughs> yes, no, I, I agree with you. Because when she says... When she says that's the West Wing. We've preserved it exactly as it was when the first Mrs. De Winter was there. And then Jasper the dog is sitting there in front of the door like Cerberus at the gates of Hades. The only sympathetic character in the whole film. <laughs> Pretty much. I also quite enjoyed George Sanders, who plays Jack Favell, the kind of dashing cad who was having an affair with Rebecca and tries to blackmail them. Now, does George Sanders ever play a different type of character? Because he's essentially a slightly, only slightly less camp version of Addison DeWitt. And equally acidic. I think more wicked, far more wicked. Uh, and of course, then he was Shere Khan, the voice of Shere Khan in Disney's The Jungle Book. He was, wasn't he? <laughs> but also, in All About Eve, isn't Addison DeWitt not entirely evil? Mm, like, he's certainly amoral, yeah, and yeah. so is this guy here. It's notable, isn't it, that so far the things that I've enjoyed most in the movie are the people who are the, like, delicious villains and, like, creepy demons. And also the other person I liked is an equally unlikable character, the wonderful Mrs. Van Hopper. Oh, yeah. yeah who's just, like, uh, yeah, I like, barking at, at Joan Fontaine to tell her to do things. I like those scenes, those early scenes of the film. And like, so we were talking about the fact that, is this film actually in any way romantic? Okay, I'm going to interrogate you on this, John. Okay. So... Mousy Joan Fontaine 
is there as Mrs. Manhopper's companion. And in comes dashing Maxim, played by Laurence Olivier. Now, I think the most you could say for them is that both Joan Fontaine and Laurence Olivier are very attractive people. Joan Fontaine. Joan Fontaine is very pretty. She's so pretty that I don't even know what she looks like. But that's what I mean. She's much... I will say it. I'm team Olivia de Havilland all the way. She's much prettier than Olivia de Havilland. She lacks completely personality. And would you say that Laurence Olivier is hunky here? Yeah, I think Laurence Olivier is very sexy. Now, I don't really know many Laurence Olivier films. Also, do you notice... You get only one indication of his body when he's wearing short shirt sleeves in the film, the home movies they're watching of their honeymoon. And he has that kind of, like, thin, sinewy arms that I quite like on a man. Well, to me, when you really want to see the young Laurence Olivier at his sexiest, you've got to go to the old Vic, walk up the stairwell where they, in the kind of upper reaches where they have all the photos of various performances that are on the old Vic, and find some nice one where he's wearing some leggings mm. and some Shakespearean ones with Vivian Lee, and, like... Those are some nice games, okay? Laurence Olivier was a sexy, stunning man. At this time, you know, he was sort of just beginning his film career. I think they didn't really know what to do with him. He just seemed like an interchangeable British heartthrob, and it wasn't until later when he took on stranger roles. I mean, honestly, like, when he starts playing decades later... Richard III on film and Othello and is kind of allowed to be creepier and weirder. I think that's where his true genius, mm. which probably he did on stage, is shown. In this, I think he's he's good. He's fine. He's but fine. He's so you were literally like, oh, this is a love story while we were watching it. I was like, I, I, sorry if I disagree with you, Sean, but like, I'm not going to be swept off my feet by a man who proposes marriage in this way. He says, I'm proposing marriage to you, little fool. And then as soon as she accepts, he's like, marvelous. Now will you pour me out a cup of coffee? And you're just and like... Two sugars milk. <laughs> Remember that now? Same as my tea. I, okay. <laughs> just, his kind of troubled aristocrat manner is just so dismissive. He treats her like a child. Yeah, okay. Let me qualify this, though. Uh-huh. There's something about a much wiser, established person finding ordinary you, you know, a plain old little you, to be, like, attractive enough to, like establish a life with Don't as long as they have a stately home to I'm support just, you I'm just saying that this like, is your fantasy no it's Sean. not my fantasy Brian <laughs> what I'm saying is that there's something quite in a sense not erotic not passionate easy easy about <laughs> just being swept off your feet so basically you want to be a kept woman by someone who treats you and infantilizes you but I, I would busy myself with the home <laughs> With your correspondence in the morning room, as the first Mrs. De Winter did. I just find it hard to care about these two people who have basically, like, everything in life and nothing to do. Yeah, but this is when you stop caring about them, is when you go to Manderley. Okay, so you enjoyed their courtship in Monte Carlo. I mean, there's no story happening at this point. It's just two people, one way more established and older than the other, having a great time on holiday. Well, no, it's not really a great time, because if you notice, whenever certain trigger words get mentioned, like drowning or ocean <laughs> he suddenly gets really moody yeah. and he's like standing over a cliff and she's like oh have I have I said the wrong thing I mean yeah. honestly you just this is the s- whole thing the whole film is her going oh, oh no I, I, I've upset him somehow <laughs> it couldn't be about his dead wife perhaps I'm awfully sorry darling it was very careless of me Mrs. Danvers must be furious with me oh hang Mrs. Danvers why on earth should you be frightened of her Behave more like a upstairs maid or something, like the mistress of the house at all. Yes, I know I do. But I feel so uncomfortable. I, I try my best every day, but it's 
very difficult with people looking me up and down as if I were a prize cow. Well, what is the matter if they do? You must remember that life at Mandalay is the only thing that interests anybody down here. What a slap in the eye I must have been to them then. I suppose that's why you married me. Because you knew I was dull and gauche and inexperienced and there could never be any gossip about me. Gossip? What do you mean? I, I don't know. I, I just said it for something to say. Don't look at me like that. Maxim, what's the matter? What have I said? I didn't care about them at all. And this is the thing of being this particular kind of spectator that we have become. That, like, if someone is is just unequivocally good, it's boring. There's no story there. Well, and do we want to say something about the sort of most significant plot change? I was already saying in the first half that I think it's ludicrous the way that Daphne du Maurier has constructed this, that as soon as he confesses that he's killed his old wife, she's like, oh, wonderful, then he really never did love Rebecca at all. But in this... I presume because of the Hayes Code, they've actually changed the backstory a bit. Because crime cannot go unpunished. In the book, Maxim has very definitely killed yeah, Rebecca. full-blown kills her stone dead. Yeah, so in this, what do we learn? They had a confrontation. He approached her, she stumbled backwards, and died. <laughs> she hit her head on some sort of... Shipping tackle. <laughs> It's true, that's what they say. I know it is. They go to great pains to emphasize that Maxim, in a fit of jealousy, sort of nudged her slightly, and then she accidentally died. With a big but, smile on her face. Yeah, but she was happy to have... To some, somehow the gift of death. Yeah, she somehow encouraged him to accidentally kill her. Yeah. And this is some kind of haze code kind of fudge that will then allow our two lovers to escape scot-free without moral punishment in the end. I mean, that is a major cop-out. Don't blame Hitchcock. No, I'm not, I'm not blaming anyone, except that it just... Blame like, the motion picture production code. I'm blaming Catholics, yeah, the Legion of Decency. Now, these days, we know it's not Catholics who are responsible for the state of the world. It's evangelical Christians. <laughs> Yes, Sean. Thank it you. Is. Thank you for that. People who have no understanding of the words of Jesus whatsoever. Tell that to Mel Gibson, okay? But anyway, <laughs> that kind of moral fudge just waters down the whole thing. I'm being quite negative about the film. No, I, don't, you, I think your criticism is legitimate. What was enjoyable about it? Mrs. Danvers. Okay, talk to, me, <laughs> talk to me about Mrs. Danvers. It's just one of those performances. a bit like, you know, I didn't like Julieta very much. But whenever Rossi De Palma appeared on screen as the spooky housekeeper, which I I'm guarantee you was a nod to this. Oh, absolutely. It's that whole... It's the same premise of this kind of, like, creepy yet intriguing weirdo who pops up in places the entire time. It's like preserving the memory, and she kind of, like, floats in like a ghost. Yeah. Yeah, but notice that in the same kind of way that the Hayes Code insists that our heroes can't be morally culpable. They also ratchet up the moral culpability of, of Mrs. Mrs. Danvers. Danvers. Yeah. So basically, when Mrs. Danvers learns in the end that Rebecca did kill herself because of her fatal illness, and we learn that the new Mrs. De Winter and Maxim will be able to live on happily at Mandalay, then Mrs. Danvers, it's reported, she says, she'd rather destroy Mandalay than see us happy. And so she burns down the house, and then we have this, like, 
literally like immolation scene. And it's the last scene of the film. Yeah. So we see Mrs. Danvers burn, and then there's this, the singeing of Rebecca's monogram, and then the film ends. I mean, this is the second. The flames are very good. Yeah, it's the second Selznick movie in two years that has major sets burning down. And they both won Best Picture. I Need know. I say more? I know. Immolation. <laughs> it wins every time. Holiday. Immolation. Thank you, Sean. So, basically, you're watching this kind of coded lesbian villain who's been dreadful to everyone. She destroys the house, and then she must suffer. Do you think that, like, Hitchcock knew that she was being portrayed as lesbian? Oh, yeah, no question. I mean, all you have to do is look at Mrs. Danvers' yeah. freaking hairdo to know she's supposed to be a lesbian. I, I think... Brian! No, people knew this. It's the same yeah. way that, like... You notice they never talk about exactly what Rebecca is supposed to have done. Yeah. Right? That's the thing about the Hayes Code. It's like, to people who are in the know, it's telegraphed in these kind of coded ways. Presumably to protect who? Children and Mm. or the ignorant. levels. Yeah. (laughs) I would love to know a true history of why the homosexual became the villain. I know it's like a threat to the family and to society. Like, did screenwriters writing these scripts think... Oh, I know. I'll make her a wicked dyke. They were othered. I mean, in the same way that people of other races were depicted as less than human or less than intelligent. At least homosexuals were allowed a degree of cleverness and sophistication, but the the thing that compensated for that was making them cunning and evil. Mm -hmm. And they had to end tragically because they've chosen to live outside the norms of... Polite society. Well, not just polite society, but morality. I mean, and Rebecca's in this category as well, right? She's not moral. When they talk about her, they say to the second Mrs. De Winter, you have everything that she didn't have. To put it bluntly, modesty. As the movie went on, I felt the same way when I was reading the book. I just like... God, hashtag Team Rebecca. Like, I mean, this woman sounded like she was fun. You know, Are there any other things that you really enjoyed? Notice I haven't said Joan Fontaine. I mean, I know this is an actress podcast, but Joan, if you're listening up there in heaven, or probably she's in purgatory because she's not good enough for heaven. Not she bad just doesn't have enough personality. It's like, it's like I think this is a human soul. Let's just put it in purgatory and see what happens. That is horrible to Olivia say. de Havilland's ears are burning right now. Well, what I mean is that, like, you said she won an Oscar for Suspicion. Mm-hmm. Which essentially is a very similar role. In Suspicion, she marries Cary Grant, and then she thinks that Cary Grant might be a murderer. Like, she just basically, it seems, made a career out of being mousy and worried. Yeah. Ugh. God. <laughs> I'm sorry, she was pretty. Like, I have to say, watching this, I was like, what a you know, pretty woman. Okay, I accept that, but I have facial blindness when it comes to Joan Fontaine. Don't ask me to draw or describe her, I just don't know what she looks like. Well, I watched her for that two hours and ten minutes, and I still don't know what she looks okay, like. Okay, well, speaking of people that we don't know what they look like, ooh, 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 Rebecca. So, Rebecca is the title character of the movie. We never see her, and interestingly... We never see, like, a portrait of her either. No. You know, and often in these kind of things, you'll, you'll see at least an image of Like, what do you picture Rebecca as being? Full head of hair. Uh-huh. Natural curls. A brunette. Brunette, yeah. Raven-haired. Mm, no, not raven-haired. No, auburn, you know what I mean? Ooh. 
Like, because she's spicy. She has a very full bosom. Not huge tits, just very full. And she always has this look that she's, like, she's just done something bad. Just hearing that description is like, oh my god, I would clearly enjoy this woman more than these other drippy people. I just think I have a fundamental flaw with the whole premise of this story. Yes, I know it's all about Freudian things where the repressed desires have been buried in the bottom of the sea and then they rise up to come and burst into the present great but like i wanted it to feel more gothic there were some great shots i think like throughout with this kind of amazing film noirish yeah like the candle that mrs danvers walks with and it's it truly is the only source of illumination on the screen that i can tell yeah and and also that bit where mrs danvers is standing by the window telling the second mrs to enter go ahead just jump. Mm. End it now. Yeah. And so I think you see these hints of the greatness of Hitchcock to come. Well, this thing about the novel is that it kind of ramps from set piece to set piece. Like, it's a pop boiler. It's like, and then this happened, and then this happened, and I will spend ten pages looking for an address, you know? You know, the other thing, the first note on my page that I wrote after the word Rebecca was annoying voice. This shrill Pasho accent that literally everyone, including all the servants, has, which is this kind of like BBC accent that I suppose people must have talked like this, or at least they were trained to talk this way yeah, it's so in, tedious, the, in, the, it? in the 30s, and they just say things like this, and they say, oh, the breakfast is over on the buffet. Like, it's, it's RP, but it's, but like, it's, it's, it's like, like extreme oh. RP. Nowadays, I suppose the Queen does still talk that way, so, but like, yeah. it gets so tedious. And to there's so to much it. like tea and jam and <laughs> You know, I was looking at these people's lives and being like, all you ever do is eat scones and crumpets all day. It's like, why aren't you the size of a house? You don't do any exercise. I know. It's like food just seems to be something they they just do to waste time. So basically what I'm hearing from you, Sean, is that 14-year-old you had no class consciousness and now you do. No, 14-year-old me had class consciousness and just accepted things that things were different in some places. Whereas now... I want to publicly execute everyone with a royal title on a tennis court. <laughs> Why don't you just burn them down like Mrs. Danvers does? Well, you know, Brian, we're at that stage again. <laughs> All right. Did the BBC voters who voted for this as one of the best novels of all time, like, were they deluded? That BBC poll was completely self-selecting. That was the best books for that group of people in that period of time, in that age range, in those locations, but nobody else. So it's the kind of, the kind of people who would even take the time to respond to this sort of poll are the kind of people who would enjoy this sort of middle-brow popular twaddle. Is that what you mean? Yeah, but I don't mean that in a bad way. I just mean that's the way things were. Hitchcock, when he did The Birds, he was able to kind of ratchet up this creepiness. But with this, it, it's all class privilege mm. and just this kind of standard story that's sort of all about the status quo. Mm. The status quo of who's got power, what's sexually moral, who's good, who's bad. And what's a demonstration of power? Demonstration of power is speaking up to your housekeeper. Oh, I know. We're supposed to root for her when she finally says, I'm Mrs. De Winter now. Uh, yes, it's true. I did break that China Cupid ornament. And I have every right to because I'm mistress of the house. Like, ugh. I know Mrs. Danvers is a murderous lesbian, but she's at least a member of the working classes. Yes. And she's my heroine. Yes. Oh, Danny. Danny, <laughs> they didn't treat you well, did they? So, Rebecca, how do we feel? I mean, 
I know it's a classic, but I can't say that my life has improved all that much by seeing it. Is this the first time that we've both been in concurrence that we didn't really enjoy the film? Nope, the other one was Dead Again. Oh yeah, no, no, I think... And they're both pretty similar. I think you tried your very best to defend Dead Again. Like... (laughs) Like, I'm not really going to defend Rebecca. So, Dead Again was dreadful, though. Okay, so what have we concluded? <laughs> We've concluded that we don't like gothic reincarnation, semi-horror romances. No, we do, but not when they're completely morally unambiguous and classist. Okay. Okay? I, Can I tell you about my version of how I directed it? What it would be, it would be full of these, like, alternative fantasy dream sequences in which there's extreme moments of violence... There's dream sequences in which, like, Danvers, like, claws out the eyes of the second Mrs. De Winter, or the second Mrs. De Winter, like, stabs Danvers to death, you know? <laughs> so you're, you're changing the plot, or you're just having these, like, psychic no, breaks? No, these are psychic breaks, you know? And I said that Rebecca is presented, like, the figure of Satan in the Passion of the Christ, you know? Which is like a flickering demon who yeah. appears every once in a while. And, her, and she wears a wig, but at one point, her wig will blow off to reveal that she's a bold... Serpent. I, you know what I mean? Like No. What do you think? Are we going to do this every time with every book? It's going to be like, well, here's my version. Well, I think maybe, yeah. Like, And basically every time it's going to evolve operatic ghoulishness. <laughs> is that, is yeah. that right? It'll be like, you know, my version of the Bridges of Madison County, I really would have enjoyed it much more if they'd, they'd mutilated each other on that bridge. Yes. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, in that regard, I can't wait to hear what Sean has to say about our next film, Yentl! <sighs> Papa, can you hear us? So we will be reading Isaac Bashivis Singer's classic short story Yentl the Yeshiva Boy and then we will be watching the iconic musical. So that's coming up in two weeks but Brian next week we have an extra special bonus annual special bonanza what? Which is our special episode on the current cinema. All the nominees for best actress and best supporting actress will be ranked scrutinized, celebrated and not derided this year I think. Sing it Sean. Oscar, everybody loves ya. Oscar, it's the most wonderful time of the year. At least this year there's no Alicia Vikander. Do we have anything else to say, Sean? If you like the podcast, please subscribe. If you want to visit our website, it's www.broadappealpod.com. We each have individual Twitter handles. I'm at Sean McGovern X. Brian is at B.A. Mullen Speaks, or you can like us collectively at Broad Appeal Pod. Yes, now I'm just going to go back to monogramming our pillows. And I'm going to burn down the house. (laughs) See you very soon, folks. Bye.